along with uh, my producer, Stephanie. And we have the pleasure today of having Dr. Tony Dale, founder of Sedera Health, on our podcast today. He is going to be talking about his uh, book that he wrote called The Cure for Healthcare. And I had the pleasure of meeting Dr. Dale in uh, at the Free Market Medical Association back in August, and I am super excited to be interviewing him today. Today, we are having issues streaming live to Facebook, um, but we are streaming live on YouTube also. And as always, you can catch us later when we have the edited version. And stay tuned, because when Facebook is back up, we will definitely have, have the show back up. So um, thanks for tuning in today. And um, Dr. Dale, I am going to let you take over and talk about the history of your book and, and, and what your book talks about. Well, thank you so much. It's a real privilege and pleasure to be on this podcast with you. I've uh, been very much looking forward to this time. I'm very, very happy to uh, share a little about the book and then, of course, feel very free to ask questions and uh, take our conversation whatever way you think is uh, most beneficial to, to your audience. Uh, but I guess the uh, the, the reasons for the book uh, are that throughout my life, I've seen the power of the written word. Uh, there's a very famous saying, probably a Shakespearean comment or whatever, that the pen, <laughs> you know, the pen is mightier than the sword. Uh, and I'm very aware that, uh, you know, at an opportunity like this, it, it's a wonderful privilege to share something. Uh, but uh, the, the thoughts and ideas, of course, nowadays are all captured by video or whatever. Uh, but the written word is still extremely powerful. Uh, and so uh, as I began to experience more of what healthcare was about, I guess the ideas for the book have been bubbling around inside for a number of years. Uh, but what actually prompted me to decide, no, I've just got to create the time and space to do this, uh, was when I read uh, Professor Marty McCary's book, The Price We Pay. Uh, now, he does a brilliant job of peeling the layers off the onion. Uh, and this is an onion that is going rotten. Uh, so, uh, you know, that, there's that sense as you read through his book, oh, my goodness, I knew things were bad, but I hadn't realized they were this bad. Uh, and, of course, for myself, being very, very involved in this world for 25 years at this point, uh, you know, having, uh, you know, started a company that has negotiated hundreds of millions or billions of dollars of medical bills on behalf of uh, consumers, then starting Sidera and, uh, you know, really helping create a alternative model uh, so that we don't live with this misconception that uh, somehow insurance is the only way to deal with large bills. It's one way. It's a good way in some circumstances, but it's certainly not the only way. Uh, and so, you know, with all of this sort of ideas bubbling around inside, what I said to myself, wow, you know, Professor McCary, you've done a brilliant job outlining the problem, but we've been hearing about the problem for years. We've got to find what the answers are. Uh, and I've been very privileged within Sidera getting to meet all sorts of wonderful people. Uh, and of course, the book is really a book of stories. Uh, yes, many of the stories are personal. They're, they're my own experience. Uh, but also I, I tell the stories of particularly of uh, a variety of other physicians and what they're doing, because I think answers for healthcare are already emerging under our noses. It isn't just that we have, a, as it were, an insurmountable problem. No, we don't. 
the power of the free market is actually already showing people the way forward. And that's what the book is about. So um, what you talk about the, the, the fix and, and, and I, and I agree with you, um, Marty's book, um, the price we paid doesn't really talk about a fix. So um, tell us about how your book differs and, and it has a fix. I, I'm assuming that it has to do with the non-insurance model or. Well, no, it goes much, much broader than that. And so uh, if anyone is thinking that this is a book about me and about Sidira, uh, that would be completely missing the point. That's a small part of it. Uh, but what is emerging uh, is really a whole free market medical ecosystem where the, the genius of many different people is coming to the fore, uh, where uh, I describe what's happening in direct primary care membership practices, as mm -hmm. you know, most of your listeners will know, or you know, what people like Dr. Keith Smith are doing uh, you know, through his pioneering work at the Surgery Center of Oklahoma, or you know, the, the marketable uh, growth uh, of green imaging that uh, Dr. Kristen Dickerson over in Houston uh, you know, has pioneered a, a model sort of based around the concepts of Priceline, just using surplus capacity. Uh, and what happens is that when, when thoughtful people become concerned about what they see going on around them, their minds naturally engage into the whole question of how can this be done better? Uh, and the answer is that there are all sorts of ways that things can be done better. And Oh, by the way, this not only gives people a dra dramatically sort of uh, improved experience of healthcare with higher quality care, uh, but it also in the process just significantly reduces the cost. We're not talking by, you know, one or two percent here, there, or maybe 5% over there. We're, we're talking people seeing 20 and 40 and 60% reductions in their overall costs of, uh, of having access for themselves or in the case of companies for their employees uh, through these innovations that are occurring. Yeah, Dr. Smith um, says that it's usually eight to tenfold saving, savings um, versus traditional um, health insurance model um, payments when it comes to using the free market system, which is just astonishing. I mean, it's almost hard to believe. Uh, well, you know, he's a wonderful storyteller and uh, masterful with words. Uh, and he's absolutely right. You know, in, in almost every other area of economics, we think in terms of, you know, higher price usually implies higher quality. In healthcare, that is absolutely not the case. Yep. Uh, in fact, most of us intimately involved in the system uh, feel that it's more likely to be the other way around as you start yeah. digging in. Yeah, I agree with you. And that is something hard to believe. And I will tell you some of the the big corporate healthcare systems that are, you know, largely entangled with big insurance models, they want to argue that a cheaper price is less quality. And when reality, I think it's greater quality because somebody like Dr. Smith at the Surgery Center of Oklahoma they work on a small margin, and so they have to be efficient and and have the best surgeons, the best doctors. So they they can't afford to um, um, lose money. Yeah, and you and you know, Sean, it it goes beyond that. Um, you know, the reality is 
that when you then start looking even at the clinical care, the patient experience, the rate of infection, absolutely. Uh, when, when you allow the power of the free market to come to bear, it naturally leads towards a continuous improvement process. Uh, so yes, I think it's incredibly important for people to understand. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why, you know, uh, as I like to talk about what's emerging, the key issue isn't the savings. That, that's a fantastic byproduct. But, you know, as a family doctor myself, uh, although I've not practiced over here in the United States since I moved over here, I, you know, trained at a world famous uh, institution in London. I love to mention this. It was established in 1123. Wow. <laughs> that, that sort of puts American history into context. I mean, when we think about that in America, it's, just, it's <laughs> astronomical. We can't even, you know, can't even think about that. It's hard to think about. And, you know, I, I love to tell people they've actually seen my hospital, almost everybody, although they don't know it because it shows up in Braveheart. Uh, because right at the end of Braveheart, where he's hung, drawn and quartered, uh, you know, now, of course, whether it's literally filmed at the hospital, I doubt. Uh, but there's a plaque on the hospital wall saying right here in this place is where William Ho uh, Wallace was killed. Uh, and, and so the hospital had already been there for a couple of hundred years before William Wallace. So but, you know, that that's neither here nor there. All I'm saying is, you know, uh, I like so many physicians. Yes, I have a strongly academic background, but you know, the passion that pulled most of us into medicine is that we love to help people. I come from a family of family doctors. I grew up as a sort of an eight, nine, 10 year old, you know, going with my dad on home visits in the middle of the night and uh, seeing how people received him and seeing, you know, how he took care of them. And it didn't matter to him if he was dealing with the poorest of the poor or if he was dealing with an ambassador from some country. And he uh, regularly dealt with both in the context that we lived in. Uh, but what I saw was this incredible heart for helping to make people whole. And so when you then find yourself in a system, and in my case, when I then immigrated over here, working with physicians rather than directly with patients, uh, and, you know, began to hear the stories and, you know, begin to meet friends and uh, all of this sort of thing who could tell me some of their horror stories. Uh, this naturally made me want to dig in. And of course, I, I touch on this a little bit in the book where I describe my own first direct experience of, of uh, the American medical system. Now, the medical care I got was fantastic, but the shocker came in the sticker price. Uh, and, you know, when you begin to dig into that uh, and take off the layers of this onion, you know, I, I realized immediately being a physician myself that someone was ripping off the system. I just didn't know who or what it was. Uh, and so I took the opportunity uh, at that point to really dig in. And what has grown out of that is the, the business solutions I've brought. So tell us about some of those business solutions. You, um, I'm familiar with Sedera Health, but you talked about um, a group earlier on that you've done for 25 years to save patients money. Is that correct? Uh, that is correct. Uh, I, I started the Keris Group as it was known then. Uh, it's now actually been taken over by my son, uh, who's far brighter than I am. Uh, so it's in good hands. Uh, and it's now called Point Health. Uh, and Point Health exists uh, to show people uh, how they can navigate the healthcare system in a way that uh, brings them access to quality care uh, and in the process gives them fair access to reasonable pricing. Uh, so yes, we, we started this. Uh, I actually started it 
on behalf of some of the Christian healthcare sharing ministries. Uh, I think our first client uh, was uh, Christian Care MediShare. Uh, and very quickly, based on my own experience uh, of the system, I really sort of figured out what we needed to do to help them. And so I began to help them and train their staff and this type of thing. And, you know, over those years, uh, as they were growing very rapidly, helped them save millions and millions of dollars for the community. Uh, and so th this interest has grown out of that initial experience, which was of my own experience. I, without knowing anything about the system, knocked down thousands and thousands of dollars of bills on a very simple medical procedure, which I'd been told would cost $2,000. But because I didn't understand the system, I didn't realize that the doctor was only talking about his charge. Uh, actually, I got $15,000 of medical bills in 1996, so in today's terms, about $30,000 worth of bills for something that even today, $2,000 would be ample. Uh, and I suspect if I looked up the Medicare price on that or the Medicaid price on that, it might be $2,000 or less. Right, right. And so after that situation is when you started... Um... That's when I started uh, what was then called or, the Caris Group, right. but now, now Point Health. That is yeah. correct. Uh, and it was out of my experience over the next, I guess, 15 years. You know, when I got to, uh, to 2010, when the Affordable Care Act was passed, uh, I think, you know, for myself, having been so engaged in the system and, you know, having, like I say, being involved in negotiating, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of bills, I, I knew that we couldn't just put some sort of a band-aid on a serious societal problem. Uh, and, you know, right from the start, I said to people, you know, the, the name of this act, in those days it was called, uh, in those days it was called the, uh, uh, the PP, uh, ACA, I think it was, Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that they've removed the PP now. Uh, it's not protecting the patient. Uh, in fact, patients' costs have doubled. Uh, and over the last 10 or 11 years of the Affordable Care Act, we've moved from a nation where, you know, the problem, if I can put it that way, prior to the ACA, uh, was that uh, we had a significant number of uninsured people. Uh, you know, the, the pundits talked in terms of 20, 30, 40 million. Whether those numbers are accurate is probably, you know, a technicality that I'm not sure it's worth getting in deeply, but many of us think those numbers were inflated. Uh, but instead now we have a nation uh, of people where the vast majority are functionally uninsured. Right. And what I mean by that is by when you move everybody into a high deductible environment, you know, the normal now for an individual is $5,000. You know, by the time you add spouse and ch children, it might be ten, twelve, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 of deductible. Uh, but the average American does not have $5,000 of disposable money to be paying on, on their deductibles or their co-pays. And so they've been left for 19 out of 20 people who won't have a major medical incident in any given year. They've been left where they're paying for something that actually leaves them still likely to be found in bankruptcy if they have to go through a major medical event. And we need to find ways to change that. Uh, and of course, the medical cost sharing model that we're doing, along with all the other elements of the uh, free market ecosystem that have emerged, are showing excellent ways uh, of dealing with that problem.
Yeah, we've discussed that on this podcast uh, many times about the health sharing models. And um, I want to, I'll have you go into Sidera a little bit later. Um, one of the things is that I wrote a book about some of the things you're talking about. And it's called Sickened, How the Government Ruined Healthcare and How to Fix It. And one of the issues is, is one of the fixes is health sharing models, because I don't think the traditional health insurance model, it's it's a big monster that's really, really hard to tame. And I think we just need to circumvent the system and use health sharing um, models instead of typical insurance. And I think, um, you know, driving patients that way and letting them drive their own health care and be proactive in their own health um, will set the free market in motion. And that's really what's going to fix the system. I completely agree with you. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the power here is that in a free market, you have a supply side and you have a demand side. Now, if you went back even as little as 10 years ago, uh, even the demand side for the free market was nothing like as strong as it is now. Uh, but I think the, the impact of the ACA, almost the opposite probably of what was planned, uh, is that it's shown us how bad the system has become. Uh, and into that context, you know, we're all crying out for solutions. And in that sense, I, I don't think one's looking at a political thing here. Uh, you know, patients are patients. It doesn't matter whether their political views are from the left or from the right or somewhere in the middle. Uh, what they're saying is, please show me a way that I can get the care I need at a price I can afford. Uh, and when we recognize that, you know, our country here in the States, because I'm an American now, having, you know, immigrated here in 87, uh, you know, our country is spending twice as much as any other highly industrialized Western type nation uh, to deal with health care. But it's not delivering twice the quality to everybody uh, for that price tag. Uh, and so as we begin to look at that, I, I think, Inevitably, anybody who really cares about that says, well, is if the average family is now spending over $20,000 uh, for their health care. Now, lots of families don't realize that because maybe a big chunk is paid uh, either by their employer or by the government on their behalf. But when you average out that $4 trillion price tag that we have with 350 million people, uh, you know, that's that's the sort of price that people are spending, sort of twenty to twenty-five thousand dollars a year for the typical family. That's money they're not seeing in their wage packet. And part of my argument in the in the book, The Cure for Healthcare, uh, is that when we look at the last 30 years, okay, the typical increase in salary uh, that really has been a part of, can I call it the American dream? But, you know, just the reality that every generation's children uh, have come to expect uh, that they're going to do better than their parents. That is not true anymore, uh, either in practical reality in terms of spendable dollars in people's hands or in terms of the national psyche, where now, you know, there are a huge number of people, including, I think, really sadly, a lot of the young people who are thinking, you know, maybe life's going to be worse for me than my parents, and maybe there's something wrong with this system. Maybe free enterprise, as it's practiced in America, isn't the answer. And so, you know, it, it's leading people to ask questions that need to be asked, but they're missing the fact that we don't have a free enterprise system in healthcare. 
uh, what we have a system which is, uh, I, I guess, drastically altered by the impact of the middleman, whether the middleman is the government or is the insurance company or is, uh, you, you know, the regulatory bodies or what, whatever. There's so many layers between doctor uh, and patient. I mean, one of the graphs that people would find very early uh, in the book was when I came across uh, about the growth of the administrative uh, layers within the healthcare world compared to the growth of the number of doctors. And I don't recall the exact dates, but it showed a sort of 10 to 15 year period, you know, approximately, let's call it uh, 1995 to 2010. And the growth in the number of administrators over that time went up approximately 2,000%, while the growth in the number of doctors went up 150%. Well, that tells you where a lot of this yeah. money is going, and it's not bringing us a better result. No, no, not at all. And, you know, I, I think one of the things is, is that people think that we need to look to the federal government for answers to fixing the health care. So if people believe that our health care system is broken, um, the problem is, is that 70 percent of all health care is paid by some government program, whether it be Medicare, Medicaid, VA. And then most of the rest of it is actually, you know, traditional health. We call it private insurance. But the reality of it is, in my opinion, there's no such thing as private insurance because if it's traditional insurance, it is so heavily regulated by the federal government. They are told what to pay and how much to pay and on what they can pay. So there, it's really all government insurance anymore. And that's why a free market solution like a health sharing program is really the way to go. You know, Sean, I, I think uh, a thing that many people don't understand in this context uh, is that when we take the consumer out of the process, you know, Americans are geniuses, especially when it comes to shopping. And if we can shop for a complex, you know, Boeing 747, if we're running, you know, a company, or if we can shop for a new car, if it's for me as a consumer, it doesn't matter whether it's simple or complex. People know that they can shop for something of value. And if they don't feel they're getting value, they can go somewhere else. In healthcare, that's not true. Now, I think the reason for that is not the left or the right. I think it's the left and the right. Oh, yeah. Uh, meaning that, as you put it, government has inserted itself in this process in such a way uh, that whether it's the crony capitalism you have from the right uh, or the sort of push towards government power and control that you have from the left, neither of those is likely to lead the sort of liberating innovation uh, that I describe in the book uh, of the extraordinary things that are happening. I mean, as a family doctor, I love what I see happening in the direct primary care movement mm -hmm. where, you know, doctors have got their life back and they got it by doing what they train for, which is loving on their patients and choosing to perhaps only look after 500 patients at a price that is less than the price of a cup of Starbucks coffee each morning. Way huh? less. Way less. Right? And, they, and they can do it for that price and give an incredible service to people. 
Okay, all of this type of innovation, I mean, go from something as, as practical and down to earth as that as say LASIK surgery and just look at the, the drop in the price of, you know, this uh, amazing technological eye surgery that uh, has gone on. The, the market is able to deliver this if we take the, the chains off the market and allow people to show their innate, what I would understand as a God-given sort of creativity to constantly improve. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about um, innovative solutions and Sidera is one of those. Tell us a little bit of the history of Sidera and what Sidera is. Okay, well, um, I, I think to describe that history, I would have to start uh, and give credit where credit is due. Uh, and that is that the basic concepts of what we now call medical cost sharing grew up among the Christian healthcare sharing ministries. Uh, and going back, actually, I think it was to 1981, the first of these groups, the Christian Brotherhood, and then subsequently in the early 90s, groups like Samaritan Ministries or uh, MediShare began. Uh, and uh, these groups said, at its simplest, that the Bible teaches an approach to life where it was said of the early Christians uh, that there were no needs among them because whenever any had needs, they shared. Mm -hmm. And so they literally grabbed that language and they said, why don't we do, for example, what the Amish from a religious background have done? Instead of, you know, the Amish, instead of insuring buildings, you know, and if a fire came and the church building got burned down, what do they do? Well, they didn't ask an insurance company to bail them out. They said, hey, community, let's come together and let's rebuild it. And they just rebuilt it out of their pockets. Now, you know, that's a relatively simple and very, very rare circumstance to have, you know, a building burned down. It's actually a circumstance where insurance works remarkably well. Mm -hmm. But when you move to a very common situation, the question is, could that sharing model work? Uh, and what these Christian groups demonstrated was yes. Uh, you can take that uh, innate uh, desire for community, uh, the trust that we can have between each other, uh, and you can build that on a sort of financial uh, and technological model in such a way uh, that you can give people a, uh, an effective way uh, to deal with the large medical bills that people might experience from time to time. Now, having worked with those ministries to help uh, you know, uh, them understand more about how to negotiate their bills and have fair pricing and all of this, obviously I had observed uh, over many years, over pretty much a 15 year period leading up to the Affordable Care Act, what they were doing. But I'd also been doing similar work for many of the insurance companies because in those days, uh, you know, there were limited medical benefit products and, you know, products that were just for short term and all sorts of things that, you know, sadly were sort of outlawed by the Affordable Care Act. Right. Uh, and so, you know, as the government tried to mandate and narrow down to what could only be handled by a few mega corporations that, of course, were delighted to get whatever extra business the government was going to give them, especially based upon the concept of a medical loss ratio where they... They, their profits were limited to a certain percentage. So what do we do? Let's just keep putting up the premium cost. And then what we're earning year by year grows automatically. You know, that there are such simple principles involved here. But, you know, seeing these things, uh, I actually tried uh, over a, 
a pretty extensive period of time, a couple of years meeting with some of the leaders within the Christian healthcare sharing ministries and uh, encourage them to let's open this up to anybody and everybody. But by then they were protected by the Affordable Care Act. And you know, the trouble with government protection is it looks so nice, but if the government can give you that protection, they can take it away. And, you know, as I looked at this, I just said, but surely as Christians, isn't your call to the world? You know, don't you have a response? If you've got something good, aren't you going to give it away? Uh, But I I, I guess I'm kind of naive and idealistic. And, uh, you know, when they already had something very valuable to lose if it didn't work and with an exemption that was based on the fact that they would only work with uh, active evangelical Christians who could sign their faith statements. Uh, you know, I guess what I was saying sounded crazy. Uh, but I just felt, no, we, we have an obligation to this great country that has given all of us so much. If we've got a good idea and the country is going bankrupt because of health care, then we have every obligation to share it with the nation. Uh, and so I began thinking and researching, how can we take these fantastic concepts, as simple as they are, and even within the complex regulatory environment that we live in, surely there's a way that we can bring these and extend them to anyone who wants to use this approach rather than just to evangelical Christians. And so that was the foundation in the thinking of Sidera. Now, it took almost three years uh, from 2011 through 2014 to do the R&D, particularly in the sort of legal and regulatory environment and to try and figure out what could be done. But Sidera was started into that environment. Uh, And obviously, you know, as a high tech solution in the middle, sort of somewhere in between banking uh, and insurance in most people's minds and uh, borrowing from the sharing economy, learning from Uber and Airbnb and others in terms of what they're doing. Uh, You know, yes, this is a very complex and highly regulated environment, but it's also a very uh, wonderful environment because it's an environment that is absolutely ripe for disruption. Everybody has a pain story tied up with the healthcare system. Everybody knows someone personally who's been hurt, not often medically, although sometimes that's the case, but everybody knows someone who's been hurt financially. One of the stories I love to tell, it's there in the book of Professor, you know, Cruz Danish Gari, just absolutely a world-class surgeon, founder of a whole new sub-department of uh, in-between gynecology and urology that he founded at the Cleveland Clinic and, you know, just a remarkable person. Uh, I describe in the book how uh, he did a vasectomy for someone. Uh, I think it was a friend because typically a professor wouldn't involve himself in something so simple and straightforward, something that could cost maybe a couple of hundred dollars if it was done, you know, as an outpatient thing in the gynecologist or, you know, probably not the gynecologist for a vasectomy, but, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, but uh, done, done in the surgeon's office, a uh, urologist, yeah. uh, you know, in, in, in that context, uh, maybe, maybe a fair price for the surgeon's price would be $300 or something, you know, groups like Planned Parenthood, which I'm not a lover of because I'm strongly pro-life. As a doctor, I committed, it's part of the Hippocratic Oath, that first I would do no harm. 
you know, what a tragedy to me that we would even consider harming the most innocent among us. But that's that's its own separate story. You know, if a person did go to Planned Parenthood, they, they could probably get a vasectomy for $300. Okay, his friend came back to him and showed him the bill. $9,000. For a vasectomy. For a vasectomy. And wow. that's when... Professor Danish Gauri said, I can't do it this way anymore. If that's what a hospital system is able to gouge out of a patient and their insurance companies wow. or whatever for, for you know, what I'm doing, uh, I need to find a better solution. Uh, and there are doctors all over the country who are making the same decision. Keith Smith is the first one who said to me, I began to recognize myself as a financial serial killer. Yeah. That's pretty tough language. One of the things he told me, and I and I put it as a quote in my book, is um, he said he literally felt like an accessory to the crime. And I used to hate calling my colleagues out or other doctors out that are in, in the field that are doing stuff like that because I do feel for them. But until they get out of the system, they are essentially an accessory to the crime. What you're saying is so important because it's not just doctors. It's insurance brokers, it's insurance executives, it's yep. hospital uh, senior management. Yep. Um, you know, uh, somewhere we have to say, I'm, a, I'm party to what's going on. I can't pretend ignorance. Yeah, that's, ab that's absolutely true. So that, that's, a, that's a great story, and it just tells you what the system has done to rip off patients. And But it doesn't have to be that way. There are free market solutions. Um, read Dr. Uh, Dale's book. Um, there are solutions to it. Um, and you don't have to put up with it. And then one of the things that our goal is, if this podcast is to educate and empower consumers to take charge of their own health. And that includes financial, because that's very, very important. It's incredibly important. Yeah. So Dr. Dale, I appreciate you educating us today. And definitely you've met our goal of educating and empowering individuals um, I'm excited to to read more into your book, and um, I do want to hear a story, though. I At the Free Market Medical Association, you discussed a very, very special story that I think made everybody in the room, it made their hair stand up on their arms. So can you tell us that story? Very personal. <laughs> it is very personal because it's been a significant part of shaping my medical career and the things that I've done uh, around the, the medical world. Uh, you're referring to a story I, I told, uh, I think it was the uh, winter of 1975, 76. Uh, and in Britain, is a, it was a winter of discontent. Uh, the family doctors uh, and uh, all, all, all doctors, I was still uh, in a residency program uh, for the first time ever. Uh, doctors working in hospital had gone on strike. Uh, and so uh, at a time at a go slow, where technically we had said as doctors, we would only work 40 hours a week because we were typically working in our residency programs, more like 100 to 120 hours a week. Uh, actually, because of what was going on in the nation, which now included a flu epidemic, very reminiscent of where we are with COVID at the moment, uh, all of us were still working 100 to 120 hours a week. Uh, and flu is a serious killer. Uh, and so people were dying like flies all over. 
and on this particular night, the, the group of physicians I was working with that I was training under, uh, uh, we were responsible for the hospital intake for that night. And Mr. Smith was admitted under our care and was on my ward where I was the primary physician uh, for, responsible for him. Uh, and, you know, he had the flu and he had pneumonia and he, he's, uh, he was getting better quite quickly. Uh, and so he had only been with us four or five days. Uh, I came essentially with a view of doing a discharge medical on him, checking everything was okay. And while I was listening to his chest, I couldn't hear things really well. And I, I said, you know, do you mind, Mr. Smith, uh, just slipping out uh, from the bed and standing up uh, so that I can have a proper listen to your chest? And as he stood up, he had a cardiac arrest. Uh, and so immediately we called the crash team. Uh, we were able to resuscitate him. And for the next couple of weeks, he was hanging between life and death in the intensive care unit. Uh, and then he began to slowly recover. Uh, and so during this now protracted period of time, I got to know him pretty well. And he was a fascinating guy. Uh, I'm, I'm so glad that I've always loved my parents, uh, my patients enough to, uh, you know, ask them meaningful questions mm -hmm. and to be willing to expose myself as well in that sense. Uh, and I found out that he had a number of kids. Now, this was important, though, because when I asked him about what they did, one of them uh, actually was chairman of our area health authority. So meaning about 20 administrative levels beyond me as the junior doctor there. Uh, he, was, uh, he, he had a son who was my boss. I'm glad I found that out. And I also found out about him. He was a fascinating guy. I, I, I lived and worked in the East End of London, which uh, you know, if any of your viewers have seen things like Call the Midwife or East Enders, they'll know it's a poverty-stricken part of London. Uh, and uh, he was a cobbler. He made shoes and he made handbags. Uh, and that's actually a very important point for, for this story because it came to this now last day when he was ready genuinely to go home. Uh, and uh, I, I got called on my pager. We used pagers in those days. And uh, when I called, they said, oh, you know, Mr. Smith is ready to go home, but he'd like to see you before he goes. And so I said, of course, I would be delighted to see him. And I came down to the ward. Uh, and he pulled out of his bedside locker uh, a, a package. And he, he said to me, oh, Dr. Dale, I've, I've got a gift for you. Uh, and he, then he said, oh, well, actually, it's not for you. It's for your wife. I know I'm not allowed to give you anything. Uh, and I thought to myself, not, not being a, you know, necessarily a totally altruistic, oh, why aren't I allowed to get anything? <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, be, be that as it may. Uh, I, uh, you know, of course, I very quickly pushed that uh, away and I said, oh, well, thank you so much, you know. Uh, and he said, oh, it's kind of special. He said, it's a handbag. Uh, but he said, it's identical to the handbag that I made for the Queen. Wow. Now, when you're English, that's like amazing. And my wife still has that handbag. She hardly ever brings it out, but on super special occasions, it comes out. But, you know, what changed my life was what came next. As I walked away from his bed, and, you know, maybe not all your listeners will sort of understand exactly what I'm saying here, but there's that sort of still small voice inside. Many people would call it conscience. For me as an active Christian, I would call it the, the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to me. As I walked away from that bed, it was like this still small voice inside. And this is the weird thing. It sounded really sarcastic to me. 
And it was like God was saying to me, well, Tony, you know, everybody thinks you're fantastic. Mr. Smith just told you how fantastic he thinks you are. The nurses and the staff here, they think you're fantastic. But none of them know why. And he reminded me of something that I'd been reading. And I, you know, take Bible reading seriously. I feel there's so much to learn from such an amazing book. And I've been thinking about a verse that comes in one of the Old Testament prophets where it says this. It says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I will share with no other. And I found myself thinking as I walked away from that bed, if I was going to live an honest and integrated life, with my patients, with my colleagues, with my family, then there's no way I could take glory for what God was doing inside my life. And I had to learn how to open up, even like in a time like this interview, to say the reality of what we can experience and of, if you like, the joy and the peace and the competence uh, that others might see in my life is a direct consequence of the way God has worked in my life, for which I'm just so profoundly grateful. Well, I think that comes out as obvious when um, people talk to you, and I know it does when I talk to you. So thank you so much for that story, and thank you for being on our on our show today. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. It's been a privilege to be with you. So Dr. Dale, as we wrap up, um, how do we get a hold of your book? How do people get a hold of your book? Okay, well, uh, they can get hold of the book uh, at Amazon or Audible. Uh, you know, all, all of the classic places they can go and, and for it, and uh, it's easily accessible. Uh, so, yeah, uh, if you prefer listening, go for a listening version. If you prefer the written version, go for the written version. Yep, just look for The Cure for Healthcare by Dr. Tony Dale. And if they're wanting to understand what we're doing at Sedera, they just go to sedera.com. That's S-E-D-E-R-A.com. Uh, and we'd love to be able to help them or the company that they work with. Sounds good. I really appreciate you being on. You've definitely uh, um, inspired me and made me realize why we go into healthcare. It's to help people. And thank you for being on today. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. And Monday, tune in because we will have um, somebody from, I don't know the name of the individual, but they will have somebody from Sedera Healthcare talk specifically about Sedera. So tune in Monday, 1230 to 1.30 Pacific Standard Time. And this Wednesday, where our midweek podcast is changing from Thursday to Wednesday because of my travel schedule, we will have Casey Young on. She is a nutritionist and a personal trainer, and she is going to talk about how women should stay healthy past 40. So you don't want to miss out on that. 8 to 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time this Wednesday. Tune in to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. And thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in today. Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Thank you.